There's a very good reason so many of us love the do-it-yourself programs on TV. We want beautiful homes on a budget. But more importantly, we need sanctuaries of beauty for our families. Today's guest, Noelle Maring, is here to talk about inexpensive ways to create beauty in the home. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik, and today's guest, Noelle Maring, has a real talent for finding inexpensive ways to create beauty in the home. Noelle Maring is a frequent writer on contemporary culture, politics, and religion. She's an editor at the Catholic Women's Online Magazine, TheologyofHome.com. It's a beautiful website. And a co-author of the book, Theology of Home, coming from TAN this year. Very excited about that. Noelle lives in Southern California with her husband and their six children. Welcome to the podcast, Noelle. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. I'm really excited because I think this is uh, just such an important topic for all of us, not only just to save money, but to be... Um, kind of wise in the ways of just creating beauty from, you know, in our own space, in our own way. But I'd like to start off by just talking about the website that you contribute to, um, which is Theology of Home. Would you tell us a little about the mission and what we can find there? Sure. Uh, so Theology of Home started about a year and a half ago, and it's born out of the desire to, you know, we were looking around and seeing that women are you know drawn to magazines and we are taking care of our homes and we're interested in fashion and beauty and decorating but we also have substantive needs for things that are deeper than that right so we want to take care of our children's not just physically but also spiritually ourselves as well we want to know what's going on in the world you know so we have all these varied interests and it's sort of uh, trying to aggregate different uh, all of those fulfill all those desires but without going to all the kind of the junk that's put out there and published in women's magazines. And there just was a real uh, hole there for waiting to be filled, it seemed like. So Carrie Gress, my co-author, came up with this idea for this website where we aggregate 10 links a day and we email them to your email box once a day in the morning. And they've got you know about usually about five things that are related to the faith and sort of trying to buoy our, our faith and also uh, form, form us intellectually and spiritually. And then the other five links tend to be you know anything from a, a really good recipe we found or some fashion tips or you know those more important but also kind of fluffy things that we are, are important to our lives, the concrete. We're embodied beings. We like to we're not just spirits, you know, walking around. So, so how to address the whole woman is really the mission of the website. And we also have original content. We feature uh, different people's homes and the way that they incorporate the faith into a particular corner of the room or into their whole house, you know, and do it beautifully. So just to have some personal interest pieces and, um, and lots of other original content too. So it's been a lot of fun. We've been enjoying it. A great deal. And it's so much fun to read through. And it's a beautiful website. I think women are hardwired to appreciate beauty because when you open the website, you just kind of go, oh, gosh, it's like walking to someone's home where you think, oh, I could live here. This is so lovely. And what I love about the way you curate the content, you mentioned in the beginning, in order to find the stuff we're looking for, a lot of times we wade through a lot of junk, but we wade through a lot of stuff that's connected 
with companies or agendas that are very antithetical to what we're all about. They're against us in some respect. I don't mean as consumers, but certainly as Christians. And so you're, you and Carrie have, or Dr. Gress, have been really careful about really clarifying, like, where's this content coming from? Is this from a good source? And so we can just kind of have fun. It's like jump into the pool, satisfy your mind, your body, your spirit, your home, your, your desire for fun and connection. It's all just really very beautifully done. I just want to, I can't say enough about it. I, I share links from there with my homeschool network fairly often. Oh, good. Yeah, we hope it'll be time saving too. You know, it's sort of we want to be like that girlfriend that is texting you and saying, "Hey, look at this great article I found, and here's this good recipe." And we've scoured them to make sure they don't have inappropriate ads or language. You know, we so we try to do the behind the scenes work and then really put out the most interesting, compelling things for the day. So, yeah, I'm glad it feels like that for you because that's what we're trying to aim for. Oh, it's so successful in that way. Why is it such an important topic, our home? I mean, that you and Dr. Carrie Gress have written this beautiful book coming out uh, with beautiful pictures and everything in it, all about that uh, kind of a simple idea that has many branches. But what is, the, what is the core of why this is important, our theology of home? Right. Well, home is one of those words that I think it's such a simple and ubiquitous word, but it's so far reaching. It means it's on so many different levels and so many different layers to it. Really, the idea is that home is a universal desire of our heart. You know, we, we think about watching straight videos of strangers, you know, uh, army, uh, military man coming home and a surprise homecoming and greeting his wife and children and so many movies and songs that are focused on, you know, home and that pull that, that home is so evocative. There's an, so much nostalgia built around it, but there's also longing, which is to me really fascinating that it's both, both sort of connecting us to our past and our history, but it's also pointing us towards something that we desire, that we're longing for, and you know, it's, that's pointed toward the future. So I think oftentimes that manifests itself in an overemphasis on the material part of home, where we have to have our forever home, and we have to have the perfect home, and we're competitive, and we're overly materialistic. When really, uh, you know, it's a pointing us toward heaven, or, and and God gives us these little hints and tastes, foretastes of that peace and that joy and that abundance that we will have in heaven. And so much of that, I think, is a f- we can have foretaste in our actual homes today. What we're establishing in our homes, the beauty, the the love, you know, the the fo- what we're fostering. So our homes can either be, you know, Carrie often says this, it can be a foretaste of heaven or it could be a foretaste of hell because when home, you know. <laughs> Sometimes I feel that way about my- Sometimes different times during the day, it can be either. <laughs> right. But really when, you know, when home goes badly, it's incredibly wounding. When families go, when things are, uh, go awry and when there's ruptures or when there's dysfunction, it can be very, very deeply hurtful for any of us, you know. And so I think that's a significance of just how important it is and why home is so important. And the, you know, the irony, of course, is that we all know this. We all focus so much on our homes. I think we spend about $450 billion a year on home improvement and home goods and things for our home. But we never want to be, no one wants to be a homemaker. <laughs> the word is sort of taboo and it's stigmatized. And so that's sort of an interesting tension that we're trying to tease out. If we're all that we're all so compelled by this thing, but we don't, we're so disparaging of the actual work that goes into it. 
as an, a full-time thing, you know, and there's some varied reasons for that. And we, we have a lot of speculations for that, but we're not particularly in this book. Um, this book is sort of meant to be positive meditations and re- reorientation on the beauty that we can foster in our homes and how to sort of reorient all of us toward that, but also toward looking beyond that to heaven. So it's not a polemical book by any means. Yeah, we're we're very excited. Theology that you have to grind your way through. It's a welcoming kind of a text. It's welcoming. The ideas are easy to access. That's right. Very accessible and still meaty. So there's there's some good meat there, but it's really for anyone. It's could be for you know we have had great responses of people excited about it who are not of the Catholic faith or not of any faith, but you know, and it just speaks to I think how universal this concept is. So yeah, we're very excited. Oh, yeah, it's just beautiful. The whole thing is beautiful. So where do we get started? I mean, a lot of us are just so busy. We don't, we don't even know what the starting point is. We may be dissatisfied with how things feel in our homes in terms of the environment, but where would you begin? Yeah, so that's a hard one. I do think that there is one thing that we have to get on board with, which is starting, getting started with a new home or, you know, your, your first home, or you, maybe you just got married, you're just having, starting to start your, build your family, or you are, you know, advanced in your family, but you have a new place, whatever. Um, I think we have to reconcile the, the idea that it's going to be slow. So furnishing a home and getting your home the way you want it is not the work of a week. <laughs> it's hard. My, actually, my mother-in-law has this great saying, and I don't know if she got it from someone else, but it's that shopping is either time or money. If you have the money, well, you just buy whatever. If you, have the, if you don't have the money, you need to put in the time. <laughs> you have to have one or the other. You can't have a budget home very fast. That's rare. So because uh, so many of us are trying to build our homes beautifully on a budget, I think just the idea that it's going to take time is the first thing to wrap our minds around. But where I would start concretely is generally a rug. A rug is, uh, it can be a big investment piece. And I have some tricks around that, which are, um, I think jute rugs are excellent because they are really neutral palette. I find them to be pretty kid-friendly they can kind of shed, uh, um, and some, that bothers some people. It doesn't bother me. Or hand-me-down. Hand-me-down. I've often raided my parents' house for old, you know, beautiful woven rugs that they would have maybe rolled up in a closet and said, hey, can I? <laughs> yeah. And then it's got the history of your family. So I think that's a smart way to go. You know, you can do secondhand. That's a little bit trickier because with a rug, you want to you make sure that it's, you know, I brought one home off Craigslist once and I remember it just, it smelled so bad when I unrolled it. It, it was smelled mildewy. So that for, for a rug in particular, that could be a tricky thing. But I really like the natural fiber jute. I think it's more appealing than acrylics and you can layer things on top of it. I'm big on animal hides. Um, I find them to be incredibly kid-friendly and layered on top of a jute. It can have, just have this tonal, I have a beige cow hide over a, you know, a beige jute and uh, it and nothing stains it. It's uh, totally impenetrable, which is great. Wow. Also, sometimes people go to carpet stores and have something cut to size with a binding around it. So anyway, so there's a lot of options there. But I think one thing to be careful of is oftentimes people buy a rug that's too small. And then it can look like your furniture is sort of just barely holding on for dear life. It's much more graceful and expansive to have a, a rug that fits the room and is, you know, a little bit larger than airing on the side of being too small. So I think I would start there with a rug. 
and then you know you 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 can pull your paint from it. So we could talk about paint more in detail, but the rug is really going to dictate all those other choices: throw pillows, you know, bigger pieces of furniture. So if, if particularly if you have a colorful rug, so I would okay. start there. Yeah. So yeah. you've got this yeah. central sort of palette that you've laid out. And if it's something neutral, like a natural jute rug or an animal hide or something like that, probably can go in a lot of different directions. But like I'm thinking about our dining room when we moved in, it was just all white tiles. And we were like, tiles in the dining room? But you'd have to jackhammer them out. And we didn't know what to do. So we shopped and shopped and shopped. And finally, on sale, got a really quite fairly large, just very soft kind of tonal garden themed rug that we put down and it just made the room. Our little farmhouse country table sat on it. We always feel like we want to bring the garden indoors a little bit. And that's where most of the color is. It, it goes with some things now that are on the walls and the wall color. It just all, it, that rug really made that room. Oh yeah, that's super transformative. I always say if, if you don't like, like say you have an apartment with beige carpeting or you have tile floor that you don't like, just a beautiful rug is such a nice solution because it grounds everything and it just starts the room off from the bottom up to being, you know, into sort of a lovelier, more beautiful ambiance. So yeah, it can make up for a lot of ills, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so uh, take us out to the next step. Once you've got that rug in place, what, what are you thinking? Now? So you mentioned paint. Would you go right to paint after that? Or would you start picking out furniture? I think I would pick the big pieces, get the big pieces in place. So with furniture, you know, the thing that I recommend to people to, if you're going to invest somewhere, you know, the rug and the sofa are the places to go. We've had our sofa for 16 years and it's a micro weave. So it looks just like a tweed, but it really rejects any type of soil. It's, I, I prefer to a micro suede because micro suede shows all of the hand prints and <laughs> it's hard to make those look, keep those looking nice. But for me, it's been so kid friendly and it's still, it's a, it's a, it's a um, modest profile. So it's not bulky. It's just simple kind of classic. And I've liked that a lot. And it's a neutral color. It's sort of a deep, olive charcoal-y kind of color. And then after that, I'm really big on finding pieces either at, through Craigslist. Like I'll look on Craigslist. We live near Santa Barbara. We're half an hour away. So I'll check out their Craigslist because I'll, you know, I know there's a lot of people who might be getting rid of very nice things up there. And I'll just plug in, you know, a filter it for a certain style. Or if I really love restoration hardware, for example, you could just filter restoration hardware chair, you know, do searches in that way. Um, and then, so I've gotten my coffee table from Craigslist. I spray paint it like a Chinese red color and just this really nice pop uh, focal point. I got really neat vintage, a pair of vintage chairs off Craigslist that are beautiful. I could be a upholster, but actually upholstery is in good shape. And then I have two great ottomans just from Target. Like I find at the discount stores, you can really find some fun, neat things. Uh, I have, so I, another thing I did was um, I had this long blank wall in my living room and I was constantly, I'm constantly looking online for inspiration. So I found this room that had this really beautiful use of a wall space and it was just this long built-in credenza with a floating shelf on top and they had artwork and books and it just was really simple but really lovely. So, but I couldn't afford to get a custom credenza built. So I just went to Ikea and found two long white cabinets, put them next to each other to make a really long uh, horizontal space and then bought two floating shelves to hang over it about the height and 
anyway, it, it wound up working out so well. And it was very inexpensive, not a big deal. And then I put a, a vintage desk chair that I got for $20 off Craigslist at, at, next to it. And it sort of is neat juxtaposition, the white, you know, sort of modern with like the vintage wood. Um, anyway, those types of contrasts are, are fun and interesting for the eye, I think. So I think I would go to furniture next and then, and then to paint. So paint is tricky. <laughs> I think it's really easy to get it wrong. And it's, I've made my share of mistakes. Luckily, it's a cheap mistake to make, you know, but it's laborious. Yes. So you always want to make your paint be something that is contextualized in the room. One of the ways that we get it wrong often is by picking undertones that don't match the undertones in our room. So say someone has a beige, that beige carpeting, you're in an apartment with beige carpeting and you think, well, gray has been the, the popular color for the last eight years. I think gray has been a big trend. I think it's probably going to, it's maybe at the end of its lifespan, but so then they make a really, put a really cool gray paint, cool meaning not warm. And they've got this warm beige carpeting. Those tones are going to really not be in harmony. That's not, it's, you're all, you're going to feel like something's amiss here and you're not going to be able to put your finger on it. So I always say, don't pick a color just because you see it in a magazine or you see, you just think you like that color. Pick a color that is appropriate for your room. You know, just sort of like fashion. We want to not just try to wear the trends. We want to try to wear the thing that works for us. So it's the same thing with our, our homes that we really want to pick something that is going to work for, for, for the room that we're focusing on. Yeah, another thing that occurs to me, Noah, along with tone, is that I've noticed that the paint colors tend to dry darker than you expect. Have you had that? Yeah, they always look, so it's good to test them uh, in context. So just to test them on different parts of the wall, sometimes people will just paint a big poster board and then tape it on, you know, at different times because the light is going to look different at different times of day and on different walls. So that's one good idea. Um, the other thing is that, you know, there's, oh, oh, the finish, the finish of the paint, people, we often can be confused about. There's flat, matte, satin, eggshell, semi-gloss, high-gloss. I always think that a flat, well, actually, sorry, a matte, which is a flat finish, but washable. So it looks just like a flat, but you can wipe, you can wipe it down. I think that almost always looks lovelier. You get more dimension and depth of color. And uh, it's, you know, the glossier paints are really should be reserved for molding, you know, a satin for a kitchen wall, a bathroom, those types of kind of the wetter, more messy places. But even for my kids' rooms, I do a matte. I just think it really looks so much nicer. Um, it's quieter. It's just a richer, richer version of the color. I often find with the softer matte colors that you almost feel like you could fall into them. They're, they're so soft, they're almost cloudy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't give you a hard feeling about the wall. <laughs> it makes it, the gloss makes the wall jump out a bit. Yeah. Yeah, and I loved what you said about treating the moldings differently too, because one of our cheap fixes has been when we moved into this house, we had a lot of the small clamshell moldings around the ceiling. But my husband likes a bigger, chunkier molding around the top. And so he just took a little bit of half round below that by a few inches and went all the way around and then just painted it all the same color. So it gives the effect 
a much bigger, chunkier molding, it cost us practically nothing. How smart is that? Oh, well. That's a great idea. That's my smart honey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so I think paint, yeah, furniture and then paint. I am big on interesting or thinking about your light fixtures. Um, lighting is extremely important. I remember when we had, we bought our first house and it was our starter home and there was this really hideous like 70s light fixture and we didn't have I didn't have a budget and I didn't know how to change a hardwired light fixture but I was so desperate to do it I, I bought this outdoor like lantern light that was you know on clearance at some light store and then I just started googling how do I hardwire light <laughs> and I took it down. I was pregnant so you know you get that nesting energy but, but I remember thinking it gave me the surge of oh I can do things that I didn't think I could do and you have to be creative when you're on a budget I couldn't hire someone I had to just figure it out and that's the nice thing about YouTube, you know, we can, we can learn almost anything these days. So uh, DIY obviously has exploded over the last 15 years or so. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderfully, wonderful democratization of design. <laughs> we, can, we can really take ownership of our own homes in that way and do so it's much. It's really true. And, and it reminds me too, it just circling back that explosion of interest in DIY and Home Depot and all these different stores that, that have emerged, these big successful chains. You and I have talked about this before, that this explosion of interest in the home it is at root that longing for heaven, for that place that where we ultimately belong. But it just, it, it's so strange that we're so afraid to call ourselves homemakers now, that that's been somehow made toxic for us by a lot of false messaging. Um, but, but the DIY movement is more our speed. It's still homemaking, but it's, look how empowered I am. I can jump in and change this light fixture. Right. right. <laughs> I really think it's just, a, yeah, <laughs> it's just an irrational taboo, I think, at this point. The word homemaker is really just an irrational taboo. It's been such, such, such subtle messaging for decades, you know, and even explicit messaging, you know, in the 60s, there were, uh, Carrie and I were talking about, Betty Friedan said, if you are a full-time homemaker, you have wasted your life. You know, it's it, she was not mincing words. <laughs> wow. So I think, you know, it's really done a disservice to women and it's complicated, something that's already complex. You know, not every woman is going to be a homemaker. Not every woman is going to be a working woman. There are different situations and financial, you know, circumstances, but we really need to, it muddies the waters further to irrationally stigmatize something that's such a beautiful calling in life and really such important work building the future, the culture, the society you know, as the woman does. So absolutely it's, it's, right. it's irrational. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, as empowered homemakers, <laughs> so you're fix, you're finding light fixtures that you prefer. You find the ugly things that are left over in the house when you move in. But well, how do you reconcile when it should be overhead, when it should be cool light or warm light or like how that relates to what you're going to place on your walls? Can you give us a few just like basic guidelines for working that out? Sure. So the general rule of thumb is that you light things that you need, illuminate what you need to illuminate, and then you move on to ambient lighting. So you first you start with your task lighting, and it's different for each room. So in our kitchen, we ended up doing, um, we remodeled our kitchen maybe nine years ago, and we put in, my architect refer, uh, ref, uh, friend of mine suggested daylight light, which seemed very white at first. I was so used to the yellow or light, but now I love it. And I, I find that because it's such a task-oriented room and it's not super well lit from natural daylight, 
it's just, it's wonderful. I love it. And we have under counters. So we lit everything that needed to be lit. In our living room, the lighting's challenging because we took out the overhead lighting because it was, it cast a lot of, overhead lighting can be tricky. Like, you know, those ceiling fans with the light bulbs tends to be super unflattering. It casts shadows on faces and it's just not very complimentary light. So what we did is we put in wall washers around the perimeter of the room. So the, the, the light will hit the wall and then it just bounces off. And we uh, encircle the perimeter of the room with those. And then including we have two bookcases and just hit those with light. And then after that, it's just ambient light. So it's lamp, table lamps, lamps by the sofa. Uh-huh. Tell us what kind. a wall washer is. What does that mean? So it's a recessed can but half of it is covered so that the light is directional. It's not a spotlight, but it's just a, a sort of more of a, of a general light that hits the wall instead of goes down. And then if you, so you light the perimeter and uh, corners especially are important to light. You don't want a dead corner. I mean, not specifically the corner, like pointing into that corner where the walls meet, but just have a light on either side of the corner, for example. So that's, that's the way to do it. If you can't afford to install recessed lighting, then I think you just, um, you know, they have so many creative options now. Like they have just a thing, a plug-in that can be an uplight that you can put behind a chair or behind a plant and just create some ambient lighting that way. Table lamps are great, you know, pools of light surrounding and then, you know, that task lighting. So if you want to have a a place that you read, so you have like a really good reading light right there. So the more the better, I think with lamps. I love them. <laughs> I do too. I do too. We tend to like lamps better than overhead lighting um, just for the mood of it. Just feels warm and welcoming. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's what you want in your living room. Okay. So um, incorporating our homeschooling life or our big family life into our aesthetic is one of the, one of the ideas that, that you talk about. Step us into that. Okay. Yeah. So I think that there's a couple of different ways we can fall into one extreme or the other. One would be pretending like we don't have children or we're not a homeschooling family and try to make that invisible in the way we decorate our homes or creating homes that look like Chuck E. Cheese, you know, (laughs) everything is plastic toys and, you know. So I think you want to walk that balance. I'm, I, when I homeschool for years and one of the things that I tried to do was to start with a function. So how do we function as a family of eight people? you know, we have towels everywhere. Okay. So, you know, this is a simple thing. Just I put six hooks in the, in the kid's bathroom so that everyone has their own specific hook. And there was no confusion about where to put your towel. Um, for, we didn't have a dedicated school room. Most people don't. So I got these really attractive, heavy duty baskets and each kid had his or her own basket that they would, that could fit all of their books, their folders, and at the beginning of the homeschool day, after chores, they would just lug out this basket and then just start working in the dining room. At the end of the day, just plop it back in and put it back in there as a shelf that they all went on. So just simple, small, easy things. You know, one of the things that I love doing for homeschooling with, uh, with kids is that they, you can really mine them for beautiful artwork. And that sort of bespeaks to who you are as a family, that you're a big family, you know. So I had, I needed, I found these five frames at a thrift store. I think I got their beautiful frames with the matting and some photographer had put some photographs he had taken that I didn't, I didn't love and I was, they weren't personal to me. So I just bought them for the frames and I had 
the kids, I picked out a paint palette. So I picked out four colors. And I said, okay, we're all going to make paintings with just these four colors and you can combine them in any way you'd like. And, and you know, you can use one or two, you can use all four. And then we looked online for some sort of art inspiration and some of them really specifically literally tried to, you know, imitate something they saw online. Others just kind of developed their own vision. But then I hung them up. We have five of them. And it just is this beautiful unified series because the palette is uh, consistent throughout. And there's a lot of negative space, you know. So I, you know, said, you know, don't try to make it just this glob of color (laughs) with everything. It's just sort of, but um, try to make shapes or try to make a face or, you know, anyway. I think that that's incredibly deviously ingenious. <laughs> you limited the colors your children could use, yeah. and then you allowed them to go, and you provided inspiration for them, and then you let them just run with it. And how beautiful. What a statement about your family life, that there are limits, there are ways that we harmonize with each other, and yet everybody gets to kind of express that individuality. It's beautiful. That's right. And they love seeing their work up there. They're so proud of it. We've had people, some friends ask if they could commission them. (laughs) So yeah, it's been, it it was a, it was, it felt like a great situation, win-win for everyone. They loved doing it. And I'm so happy that, because if I tried to do some artwork, it would look bad. (laughs) But if you say, well, this is my children's artwork and it actually looks very good for being from, being from children. And uh, anyway, so it's, just been a great way to have some DIY inexpensive. And it starts conversations. It's another way to, in a way, connect with people that are uh, experiencing your family hospitality. As we're wrapping up, I know there's lots more that we could say about this. Um, You've talked a little bit about some daily habits, like using the baskets with your kids. Is there anything else in particular you want to mention there or around spaces that we really struggle with? Oh, sure. Uh, So with I think with a f- with family life, you want to have sort of a, a not necessarily a set hard schedule, especially when you're homeschooling, but kind of a rhythm. So I would always say like, okay, you know, we get up, you know, we're, if we either go to mass or you do your morning prayers or whatever your particular habit is in the morning, and then you know, kids kind of take care of the basics of their room, general bed making and room pickup. I would always get a load of laundry started, and then get the kitchen done and then we jump into school. So it's not that, you know, school starts at 8:31. It's that, you know, we just get we all know we get these certain things done. And then in the afternoon before lunch, change the laundry in the dryer and the afternoon after lunch, full, you know. So that really helped me. It's just to have rhythms so I could sort of stay on top of things and not try to be a perfectionist in any way, but just try to do what I can knowing that I'm it's going to be limited. There's going to be some chaos, there's going to be lots of variables. So that helped me a lot. And then Saturdays would be, is, you know, chore time. Everyone works for minimum 30 minutes to an hour. We set the timer and you just work as hard as you can for this limited amount of time. And then, you know, there's an end point. So it's just, everyone's just doing it as a team. And that's been great for our family. It's helped us a lot. What else? Well, you, oh, you mentioned a space you don't love. So that is tricky. And oftentimes we do find ourselves in living in a place that we wouldn't have picked out. That's when I think, you know, I think usually when people don't love their space, it's because it's poorly lit. So we already talked about lighting. That I would that really emphasize that trying to do what you can with lighting, and then going back to that rug thing. I think that if you know if you picture that that uh, sort of dreary apartment, you can really brighten it up with a rug that you love, with a color bringing colors in that you love. Big throw pillows. That's another cheap way to just sort of gussy something up and um, bring in some brightness uh, to your room. And editing, you know, really being careful about what you bring into your home and 
you know, decluttering regularly. I think it has, has to be a lifestyle. There's, and there's so many, you know, options or so much information out there on how methods of decluttering and how to do that well and effectively. So, um, and then the last thing I would say is plant nature, bringing in nature is, can be an inexpensive, you know, plants are really popular now for good reason, just to have those organic lines sort of throwing into relief all the sharp rectangles and, you know, 90 degree angles in homes or, you know, flowers. If you can cut flowers from the yard, I'm big on having the kids get involved in that, just making their own um, combinations and uh, bouquets or whatever. Um, So, yeah, I think as much as we can bring nature into the home, that's going to be beautifying it. But just having your surfaces cleared off at the end of the day and just little, little nature right there, that can go a long way in just making even a home that we don't necessarily love become a home that we can love because this is ours and this is what God's given us. This is where we're called to be. And it's not any, our job is not to compare ourselves to another person. Our job is just to compare ourselves to how am I doing in Jesus's eyes and how am I doing in our lady's eyes and offer up our efforts and, you know, take good care of the things that he's given us and the people that he's given us. So Mm, amen. Amen. Uh, Noelle, thank you so much. We packed a lot into a short period of time. So people are going to want to follow up with you. They're going to want to find you at your website, which is noellemaring.com. I'm going to spell that out, but it will also be at our show notes. That's Noelle, N-O-E-L-L-E, Maring, Amazon Mary, E-R-I-N-G.com. You can also check out theologyofhome.com. And uh, again, that'll be in our show notes. Thank you so much, Noelle. This was just incredibly valuable. I was writing so many notes while you were talking. Oh, it was so fun to talk to you, Lisa. Really loved it. Oh, gosh, we'll have to do it again soon. Okay, everybody, stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Hi, I'm Daniel Zonas from EinsteinBlueprint.com. Today, I want to talk a little more in depth about the journey, the process of turning our homeschooled children into high-flying entrepreneurial adults. This is a critical question because if you and your family underestimate any aspect of this journey, either how much time or effort it requires, and if you aren't prepared for the terrain you have to traverse, then at the very first sign of an obstacle or setback, it's likely you and your kids will throw your hands up and declare that you can't do it and turn right back around. In fact, there's a psychological phenomenon at work here called the planning fallacy. It states that most predictions about how much time is needed to complete a task or reach a goal display an optimism bias and vastly underestimate the time needed. So exactly how much time does it really take to arm a child with entrepreneurial skills? Well, consider that most kids do a full hour of math every single day for a decade or so. That's a whole lot of math. So why would we think that anyone could achieve fluency or mastery in business, a far more multidimensional and exponential skill than algebra and geometry by merely dabbling here and there? A couple lemonade stands isn't going to do the trick, nor is selling handmade ornaments at the Christmas fair each winter, nor is passively watching a season of Shark Tank on TV. Not only will the journey be longer than anticipated, there will be bumps along the road, detours, mirages in the desert, and demoralizing failures. You and your kids have to expect all this, and yes, embrace it. Winston Churchill famously said that success was the ability to go from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And Richard Branson, the self-made multi-billionaire, supposedly doesn't even know the difference between good news and bad news. 
It's all just feedback to him, all a signal about what to do next. This is one of the main reasons that so many of us have a hard time wrapping our minds around entrepreneurship and falsely believe one must be born wired for it, that it's a gene. We were raised in schools by nuns with red pens and taught to avoid mistakes and definitely taught to avoid taking risks. Perfectionism, which I admit I'm still recovering from, is great for academics, but truly fatal in the business world. Now, please don't misunderstand. Please don't get discouraged. This is all good confidence-building news. With a more realistic sense of what's required, you and yours are now better prepared for a successful journey because you're more likely to get started right now, more likely to inject business podcasts, economic theory, and biographies of entrepreneurs into your daily homeschool curricula. If you want to learn the precise steps on how you can turn your kids into fledgling upstart entrepreneurs, visit my 14-year-old homeschool son's website, kidsgetrich.com. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.